Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of Rabbi Adam Klickfeld's weekly Rashi study class. Hope you're all well. Let's jump into it. Um, if my notes are correct, we um, spent a lot of time on a verse last week, but never touched the Rashi. And that is chapter four of the book of Shemot, verse 18. One second, someone's coming in. Um, so the first verse of the sixth Aliyah of Parshat Shemot, we're moving right along. And uh, the, the, the annual notice to this class that pretty soon we're going to be at the Parsha um, in the weekly reading that we've been studying. And that's always so wonderful when you're, um, you've been immersing in text and ideas for probably a year, if not more, in this Parsha. And then we get to actually linger in it in shul. Yes, Rick. Um, thanks for mentioning that it's coming up because uh, I'm reading Torah on the 25th and it's the first verse of the first Aliyah. So you had asked me to look for Mapach Pashtaz followed by a Revia to see how common that was. Everybody else has forgot about it, I suppose, but um, it's not that common. There's only um, five of them that um, I found and I'd, I'd like to tell you about the one. This is only the third one in the Torah, the one here with um, with Moses there, and Yeter. In the entire Torah, there are five <clears throat> instances of mapach pashta into Rivi. Yeah, well, one of them is questionable, the first one. So I just wanted to, I wanted to enlighten the class about it, if if you want. Um, yeah, sure. Um, it won't take very long, but you asked me to look. Let me see ask you how many question. there were. So I did. Let me ask you a question, Rick. Did, is there any other way of figuring it out besides going through every verse? Um, Did you go through the whole Torah? Yeah, well, you, you know, I color things up. So years ago, when I was in Nair Tamid, I colored in my tikkun. So okay, when I'm looking hold for... Hold on a second. So I just have... So a timer's going off. Hold on one second. Okay, sure. Sorry about that. Okay, yes, go ahead. Well, I, I colored in the tikkun. So if I'm looking for a revia, all I have to do is look for the pink. And what I, I'm just skimming down the page to see if there's a mapach pashta in front of it that doesn't have its resolution, doesn't have its zakev katon. So I found uh, three of them uh, right okay, away. Still, that still means going through the entire Torah verse by verse. You're, you're... Skim, <laughs> skimming it while I'm watching football. It's okay. It's really okay. Lovely. Well, <laughs> let's do this. Let, let's, let me read the verse again so we can get into what the verse meant. Okay. And then I'm happy to pull up on sharing the screen verse by verse on Safari so we can look at it as a Well, I was trying to link it together to the story. A couple of them link, but you have to use your imagination. I don't mind using imagination. Let's spend a few minutes on this, and then we'll get to the Rashi on the verse. The verse, Vayelech Moshe, Moshe went, Vayashov el Yeter Chodno. He went to Yeter, Yitro, his father-in-law, Vayomerlo el Chana. He said to him, and these are the three words that we're focusing on, um, um, let, pray, let I go, I, let, let me go. Vashuva elachai, I'll return to my brothers, Asher b'mitzrayim, who are in Egypt. Ve'ereh, I will see. Ha'odam chaim, if they are still alive. Vayomer Yitro, Yitro, now it's Yitro, not Yeter, said to him, Lemoshe, lech l'shalom, go in peace. So the three-word phrase, 
And again, if you're not laners, you'd expect the Vayomer Lo to either be involved with a da 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 or at least the second part of it, da-da-da-da. But instead, it's Vayomer Lo Elchana. And if you're a Torah reader or a Torah goer, there's something about that musical combination that it doesn't sound bad. It just sounds not what your ears are expecting. Okay, so sure, I'll be your... Um, your, your screen share. Give me the first one. That's terrific. Um, uh, one, one eleven. Brace sheet one eleven. Brace sheet one eleven. Let me pull it yeah. up. Yeah. So, um, again, I was looking for the Revias and then, uh, what comes before it. Now this one is weird and it, maybe it's the root of the whole thing, but, um, sometimes you have the Zakev Katon on, uh, the word is Desha. Tad she, ha'aretz, oh, I know this one. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So some t- in some books, in the Eitz Chaim, in my Silverman that I use for my Rashi, it has the Zakef Katon on Deshe. But in my Tikkun from years and years ago, in the Hertz Chumash, which was before the Eitz Chaim, in the Reform, the Torah modern commentary, they have a Revia on Deshe. And um, I've I think I've alternated over the years as to how to sing it, and nobody right, so notices. Just to pause, Rick, yeah. to, to demystify this a little bit, I'm placing my cursor of the words, Tadsheh Aretz. This is the <clears> note. <throat> it's like a miniature diamond called a revia. And um, what you might have expected was this note, the word over let me know, which is actually two smaller dots. And you can imagine how easily over centuries of this being recorded, that had it been this, it could have been moved to this, or had it been this, it could have moved to this. Um, if we um, apply the the um, the idea of legio difficultare, that if you have two potential uh, readings of a text, your instinct would be to say that the one that makes most sense is most common is right. It's actually the, he, the this this concept says the opposite. It's much more likely that something was switched to the regular one. From the, regu- from, from the irregular one to the regular one in the reverse, which would say that it's more likely that what is correct here, or at least original, is the Rivii. Okay, next one. Um, in uh, 9 uh, 12. Of Breshi? Yeah. Um, okay. Where um, God is talking to Noah about this is the sign. Zot, Tabrit, and then Asher doesn't follow the pattern. So I thought the sign of the breed here um, could link to the story after Moses and Jethro with the the sign of the breed on Moses' son, but um, that's a stretch. Okay, this one's a little bit different because instead of it having mapach, pashta, mervi'i, you have the expected munach after the pashta, although um, this munach under the word ani is a, a note that sounds different based on what comes after it. So you could actually ask the question, there was a real question as a Torah reader, do I read this as a munach that normally follows a pashta? Zot, otabrit, asherani, and then notein. Or do you read it as the munach before a revi, which is munach, asherani, notein. I think everyone else is bored, but Rick and I are having a great time. Let's continue this quicker. Go ahead. <laughs> I'm in my element, as it were. Uh, the third one is the one that we had in Exodus. Okay. Uh, the fourth one is also in Exodus. It's, it's in Titzavet. It's twenty nine, twenty two, and um, 
I tried to make sense of this one and it, I just didn't get anything except maybe Moses and Aaron <clears throat> were so close. They were like two kidneys, <laughs> but um, <laughs> verse 22, um, you got it there. Good. Yes. Yeah. So like, uh, you know, the extra stuff on the top of the liver and then goes directly into actually there's an, there's, it's, it's also not the same. You have a ligarme. Before Munach Rivi'i. So the one that we have in, in our verse is just Mapach Pashta Rivi'i. And now we've got actually two, two introductory notes to get us there. Okay. And then the last one, you'll all be happy to hear it, is um, uh, in Kitis. Wait, wait. Yeah, okay. Kitisa 32. Kitisa. There's none in Vayikra, there's none in Bamidbar, none in Devarim. 32. Um, right. 32, uh, one, is it not? Or is that a seven? Um, no, there it is. Yeah. Vayomru, vayomru, love. And then, kum, aselanu, elohim. So, uh, again, it's, it's dealing with, well, no, it's not Moses at all. He's up on the mountain, but, um, yeah. that's the fifth one. Got it. So, uh, uh, in fact, there's only one other time in the Torah, the first one, with the exact three-note combination of Mapach, Pashta, Rivi'i. And yeah. the others are all versions of it. Um, Rick, Kolakavod, um, and I don't even know what to say. I'm, I'm, uh, I, I, the, even if we don't have any sermonica that comes out of that analysis, um, I feel, um, I feel um, illuminated. Uh, Diane Larry? So I'm wondering if it's not musically just a way to extend a phrase that needs a few more syllables in it, because that that's the effect, right? Is to is to make the phrase musically longer. Um, that this is only a question of, you know, you just got to add something in here to extend it. The answer is a definitive maybe. We have no idea, right? Because every stretch of four or five words could be sung by definition, to a limitless number of combinations of musical notes, right? So if we just look at this one, because it's up, um, th- th- this it's a f- five-word phrase. <clears throat> the mapach pashta phrase is usually four words, but sometimes you can have hyphenated words. You can sing five words in four notes, and sometimes even in the mapach pashta phrase, you can have two munach. So it could have been, vayomru elav kum aselanu Elohim. And then Asher Yehu Lifanav. So the fact that they add in this extended Rivi'i phrase, it can be sung that way, but it's not that it has to be, or that it needed that truck group in order to get the syllables out. There are many ways it could have been done. Right. But I'm thinking actually of the of the second half of the phrase. If in in order to fit the second half of the phrase, you don't want the has sort of a um a half ending right and so that sets up anticipation of something in the second half and it's possible that it has to do with the second half rather than the first half uh-huh yeah i mean pe- people have done dissertations on the on, on, on the theory of trump right i'm my experience of trump is all personal and organic um i've never and, and, and anything about the theory of trapezol, it's, it's mostly entirely conjecture because we don't have any record of it in a self-conscious way. There's nothing, there's no um, early t- 
sources that talk about why the trap is there. So one can investigate it, but you're not going to uncover much. Um, and uh, it's, sometimes it's a nice, a nice rabbit hole to go down. I know okay. it's not reverse, but did you comment? Did you comment already on the pasik? Because that would make those those two monachs into a monach lagarme, right, Rick? Yes, the the one I just closed. I can share it again. Um, it makes yeah, it even so, stranger. So, so this line after the kum, we discussed this a few verses ago. That vertical line, which doesn't appear in the Torah, right? It's 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 a diacritical mark. It's like a vowel or a note. It means one of two things, and sometimes both simultaneously. We had it in our verse, in our uh, in our story, um, just very recently, didn't we? This verse um, in, in verse eighteen, it's the very beginning. We talked right, about okay. Um, so uh, if you're right, the third after the third word of verse eighteen, you have a vertical line of seek. When that vertical line comes after the note munach. It actually turns the note munach into a different trap called uh, people of different names were a ligarme, so that it would be sung by Yelech Moshe, and I would do it by um, sung to it by El Yeter Chodno. So it, it it actually ends up being part of the trap. But there are sometimes that that vertical line seek is after a note, a different note, in which case it doesn't change the singing of it. But it might be an indication that there is a um, a half or quarter pause there. Why? Again, we don't know. So yes, both in the verse that we're working on now in, in chapter four and this verse that Rick brought up, the in the middle of this half mapach clause, half ribi clause, there is not only um, uh, um, an extra munach, but a psik that turns it into a ligarme. Okay. Um, thank you, Rick. Let's now go to our verse. Uh, we spent a lot of time on it last week in terms of why you would add a na, like a please word when you're asking yourself to do something as opposed to asking someone else to do it. What does it mean to like ask another person for your permission to do something? Um, we talked about the different, the, 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 the fact that yeter is similar to yitro, jethro, but it's not the same word. Um, and we talked about um, what, what, what it could have meant that Yitro said to Moshe, Lech l'shalom. What, is, what did that mean in context? Now let's look at Rashi, right? Uh, Rashi has um, uh, one, basically one thing to say on this verse. So let's see. Um, uh, Tova, do you want to read the Rashi? Sorry, Rashi's not my forte. Oh, okay. Ask someone else. Um, Leonard or Rebecca, do you want to read the Rashi? I see your book. 18. By Yashav El Yeter Chotno, Litol Reshut, Shehare Nishpalo, Shalo Yazuz Minidian Ki Im Birshuto. Okay, so pause and do that because that's, um, he says something else, but it's, a, it's a, on a different topic. So translate that. Okay, so um, any return to Yeter? his father-in-law, to ask permission uh, because he had uh, sworn to him, and then in parentheses, that he would not move from Midian uh, without his permission. Right. So that parentheses suggests that there are manuscripts of the Rashi that don't include that, um, which means there are some very terse, truncated versions of this Rashi that just says, that he, he made a promise to him. 
So let's do the Jeopardy version of Rashi. Here's Rashi's answer. What's Rashi's question on the verse? If Rashi were in the class when someone said, hey, Rashi, what question do you have on the verse itself? What's troubling you? What, what in the verse is thrusting Rashi into this little um, um, idea? Why did he go back to Jethro? Okay, and, I'll, and then let's, let's go meta on that. Why is that a good question? Like, yes, why did he go back to Jethro? But what's the implied, um, uh, what, what's the implied way of imagining the scene such that that becomes a question? He need, why did he need his permission to leave Egypt? Uh, to leave Midian. Okay, Midian. but push it further. Okay, so why, why, why did he need Jethro's permission? But again, why is that an interesting question for us as we consider really the launching of Moshe's career? Rebecca Menes? Um, I think it's because maybe in the, in the uh, sentence, the earlier sentences, it doesn't say to go back to him. It says to go directly to Egypt. So it, there's a question, why the detour? Right, and when it says, it says, who's the it who's saying that? God. Right. Right. So you can imagine that the question Rashi has to Moshe, if Rashi conjures Moshe, is Moshe, you just spent a chapter in front of the burning bush for God. God says, go to Egypt and you have to check with your father-in-law. Right. So it actually like we, we take it at face value also because we have more verbal conversations with people in our lives than with um, direct divine command. So for us, it makes a whole lot of sense that you would check with the actual human being that you're living life with. But, but if, you, if you think of it in, in the biblical context, Moshe has been commanded by God to go to, <coughs> to redeem the uh, Israel. And therefore, it could be a little bit odd that the next thing is Vayelech Moshe, not El Mitzrayim, or he took the he took the um, the staff and he went, but he goes and asks permission from a human and from a human who's not part of the story yet, right? So, if, so that's probably what's thrusting Rashi into this, and that his answer is a reasonable answer, which is that um, uh, Moshe swore to yet Jethro that he wouldn't leave. Uh, with that permission, and we can go in several different directions from there, and I'll, I'll let you all flesh it out. What, what, what's the, what is this setting up moving forward, or what's the little sermonette that emerges from this answer now that we've clarified the question? Why is this a significant con- um, comment? Well, Mo- Moses is married to his daughter, right? Okay. Yeah. So he doesn't want his daughter to leave town. Okay, so it could be, you know, basic family dynamics that Moshe is about to be national leader, but before he was national leader, he was husband and son-in-law. And this is maybe, you know, setting up the idea that even when you're about to be sent off to be the great ambassador, you've got you've, you've to check with the people directly live. What else is uh, hovering here, Sue and then Tova? Um, I think that it, it opens the, it, it makes the room for now to go talk about Yitro and it's like, okay, why is that? Well, now let us see where this is taking us to. Who is this guy and where is he from? And now we get to talk all about all, all, the, all of that and how he's going to support it. Great. And what do we know about Yitro before this verse? Not a lot, I don't think. Correct. And what are we about to, what, what are we going to know about Yitro after the Exodus? Well, all his seven names and all, all the other stuff about him. Right. And um, we're, we're going to get a Parsha named for him, which of course is an accident of the verse. It's not, the Parsha's are not named thematically, but still, 
Um, he's going to play a significant role after the Exodus and has become a significant advisor to Moshe in understanding and living out God's directives. And you can imagine uh, that this, this little Midrash, which appears in the Talmud and other places as well, but in the Talmud, Masachet Nadarim, is a way of filling out the character and the relationship between Moshe and Yitro, such that when Yitro plays a large part after the Exodus, there's, there's some pretext there, right? Um, so it's in service of answering the question, why would Moshe need permission from anyone else besides God? And what it sets up is Yitro is not, there are many minor characters in the Torah that we meet one and a half times and then do not play a significant role in the extended narrative. And I wonder if this is Rashi's harnessing the Talmud as a way of saying Yitro is going to be different than that. Tova? Um, well, I like Susan's uh, comment, but uh, I think there, there's sort of uh, also two ways of looking at it. In, in one direction, perhaps kind of admirably, despite this paramount experience he's had with God, there's part of him that still acknowledges the also very important commitment and experience to human society and community. In other words, he's, he has not become a zealot. He's not become someone who you know, feels that the sacrifice of everything else is necessitated and fine. He still honors those commitments. So that's one side. The other side is it could still be showing an aspect of Moshe that is a reluctant messenger. Mm. And the fact that in the very the upcoming verse, God's going to assure him that those people who are seeking his life after his episode with the Egyptian are, are gone seems to almost suggest that there's still this lingering doubt of, you know, based on a lot of things in Moshe. So I think it could cut either or both ways. I like both of those comments, Tova, particularly the first one. You can imagine a really powerful sermon yeah. uh, against zealotry, against only relying on what you believe you heard from God right. in your religious leadership based on this comment, right? Yeah. Look, look, look what God, Moshe does the, immediately after the most intense personal encounter that any of us will ever happen with God, he goes and seeks a second opinion, right? right. From, from his father-in-law, right? So that, that, that's a really, how much of that was intended by the original Midrash, we'll never know. But it's fodder for the, the notion of a religious life that is connected to a divine concept. Otherwise, we're just in a club, right? But it's very grounded in the human relationships that govern our behavior and govern our conditions. So that's wonderful, Tova. Thank you for that. Uh, I see Rick, and then I say Elon. I can't believe you just said fodder, dealing with the fodder-in-law. But um, <laughs> Hello, Mada. Hello, fodder. Yeah. I also thought of uh, uh, Lavon and um, Yaakov and their relationship and how he doesn't ask permission at all from Lavon to get out of town, and, and uh, Rachel takes the idols. So um, that, that's a whole different situation. Mm. When I went back to the beginning uh, where Yitro is first introduced with the seven daughters and verse 21 there, Moses is content to abide with the man. And then I looked at the Rashi there. And, by, Yoel, uh, it's by Yoel Moshe. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so there's a Lashevet. Um, so it's a, it's a word play with um, Vayashov a little bit there, but anyway, um, just wanted to tell you, uh, in 21, in the Rashi, at the end of it, he again mentions the uh, oath, this uh, oath that Moses pledged to remain with the man. And um, it's the same N-E-D, 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 the, um, is that yeah. 
Talmud, right? Correct. So um, I wonderful. Just I, that's really helpful. I, I had forgotten that that we came across that particular promise. If you look, me too. Every, everyone should have it. Just look back to chapter two, verse twenty-one. Well done, um, Rick. I remember focusing on that verse on the interesting word vayoel because it's just an interesting Hebrew verb, vayoel. And I think I told you then that you know um, rabbinic and Hasidic commentaries are are, are often named as not puns. They're they're partial verse uh, verses that include the name of the person who write it. So Rabbi Yoel Teitelbaum, the grand rabbi of the, of the Satmar Hasidim, whose descendants live mostly in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, and in Kiryas Joel, New York, which is within Monroe, New York, which is where I served for nine years, his um, his tome on on the Torah is called Vayoel Moshe, um, because it has the word Yoel, Joel, built into it. So if you look at chapter 2, verse 21, on Vayoel, it says uh, Kitargumo, as Uncle has translated it, and um, Uncle has translated it as Utsvi, uh, which means to... Um, to kind of uh, agree in Aramaic, to accept. And then Rashi says, Vidomela, oh no, it gives another place where that verb comes up. And then Umidrasho. So um, that word Allah, which is a, a rather, uh, that the verb Vayoel, whose root is questionable, is actually the source of the Midrash that Rashi quotes in our verse and originally quoted here from the Darim, because the root can mean potentially agree, but could also be built from the verb Aleph Lamed Hey, which is a um, synonym for uh, a promise, an, a neder, a shu'ah, or, um, 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 or, or an Allah. I don't think it's in Kol Nidre. Kol Nidre has several synonyms for um, oaths. I don't think Allah is one of them. Kol Nidre, the Esare, the Koname, it has all the synonyms except for Allah. Uh, the Midrash says it's the language of Allah or oath. Ah, Rick, I'm so grateful to you because this, this, says, this might explain why, as uh, Rick was reading it, some of the manuscripts of Rashi don't have that extra phrase because Rashi might have imagined that we did remember what I had forgotten so that when Rashi says on our verse, he had promised him, our brains will say, oh, Rashi already told us that in chapter two. What did he promise him? He promised him not to leave Midian without his permission. Good job, Elon. Good, good sleuthing. I mean, uh, Rick, Elon too, good job for whatever you're about to say. Elon. Uh, it strikes me that this line, uh, this line of Rashi should be included in any collection of Jewish business ethics. And why do I say that? Because at the end of the day, the way I read it and what Rashi is saying, hey, a deal is a deal. And regardless of the fact that he heard some divine voice that was commanding him to do otherwise, Moses uh, felt strongly enough about it that he had an agreement with um, Jethro or Jethro and, and felt that he could not violate that agreement without first going back and getting Jethro's permission to violate it. I think it's a very important lesson that, uh, and unfortunately we see many, uh, religious people, uh, and this may go back to the issue of zealotry, we see many religious people who have uh, are, are scrupulous about their observances of, of uh, halakha, but when it comes to uh, business dealings and other deals that they have with human beings, uh, they, they feel uh, that uh, they're not bound by uh, 
by the same rules that they would be bound by with an agreement with with in in uh, in, in a kind of a religious framework. That's great, Elon. I, I gotta say that as amen, but amen. And I and I listen. I find the, the the study that we do meaningful all the time. But when organically from our conversations emerges the kinds of um, life lessons that the Torah and the commentaries may be pushing us towards that are relevant, especially in in our era. That's when this is, is the most enriching. So that's a that's a really lovely pullout. Thank you for that, Diane Larry. So as the uh, great philosopher Michael Wilbaum Wilbaum always says, more than one thing can be can be true. I think there's another reason why he went back, and for this I'm going to give credit to Chizkuni. He had to return the flocks. What's he going to do with all these sheep and goats that he's that he's that he's got? Just leave them out there in the in the desert? He's also no, got. I, to say, go ahead. He's also got to say goodbye to his wife. I mean, what kind of husband would he be? He just disappears without explaining to her where it is that um, um, that, that he's going. But I have one, one, one trivial point and one more important point. Trivial point is, it's not true that God told him to go to, go to Egypt immediately. And certainly, he didn't tell him at, at the end. They had this long conversation. It was back in chapter 3, verse 10, that God tells him to go. And then they spend the bulk of the next two chapters talking about what's going to happen when he goes and whether he should go, et cetera. So if God thought it was so urgent, God should have said to him, stop with all the questions, just get out of here. He didn't <laughs> do that. But more seriously, and I don't understand why Rashi, and as far as I can tell, none of the commentators asked the question, why didn't he say to Yitro, I want to go because God, because Hashem, because yod heh vav told me to go. And we also know that Yitro knew who Hashem was, who Adonai was. I, mean, I don't know, what, given our discussion last week, what words to use. Um, he knew that, that, that the yud Vave God had, had uh, existed. And, you, and everyone is talking about how he wanted to get out of this deal. But how do you get out of this deal? Hey, I want to leave? No. You go back and you say, a higher power has intervened, and I'm paying you the respect to explain to you why it is I'm going. It was Hashem who told me. And he doesn't do that. And I'm shocked why he didn't do that. And I want to know why, why he didn't do that. Yeah. A couple of things. First, I want to show everyone the Chizkuni that you, that you referenced. Cause hmm. it's, um, it's just, it's interesting how different it is than Rashi's read on it. Second. Um, so Chizkuni is, is less sermonica and more pragmatics. From the wilderness. Hey reader, remember where he's been. To bring back to Yitro his sheep, because it's not even Moshe's sheep, it's Yitro's sheep. He didn't know when he would, he would go back. Um, so uh, thanks, Chizkuni, for bringing us from way up there to down here. Um, your question, Larry, you, it, built into your question is, is Midrashic and shot knowledge about Yitro that we don't yet have, which is fine. But I just want to name that. Our understanding of Yitro as a Midianite priest who knew of Hashem and all the things that he had done, God had done for us comes in Parshat Yitro, right? So far, all we know is that Yitro is a shepherd that has, that has, that has daughters. So when we get to Parshat Yitro, we find that, that the, the guy Yitro had heard of the great things and was on his way to being a believer. Do we believe that that is as a result of Exodus or is there in some way that hanging out in Midian 
Ichiro had already heard about the God of the Hebrews. We don't know. I, I, before your question, I would have said the former, not the latter, right? So you can imagine the answer being, well, Yitro has never heard of yod heh vav Hey, and uh, that might be um, a less compelling reason for a father-in-law to let a son-in-law go, not a more compelling reason. Um, but I want to linger for a second. Um, just give me, give me a few seconds to, to uh, describe this tangent. It used to be the case, I think it's, the, it's still a little bit, but, it's, it, but they changed it, that when you graduate from rabbinical school at, at JTS, you have a, a senior sermon. There's one Shabbat of the year, I think they've now made it a weekday, where you are the darshan in the sanctuary, and that's your kind of senior project. Um, and it used to be a very big thing and a stressful thing, but a meaningful thing. The most memorable senior um, sermon I've ever given, I've ever given, that I've ever heard, is actually one of the most memorable sermons I've heard in all right, of all the sermons I've heard, is given by my dear friend, Rabbi Charlie Savinor, who graduated four years of, uh, uh, from JT, 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 four years ahead of me at JTS. So I was a first year, he was a senior. And his senior sermon was Parshat Yitro. And he gave a poignant and emotional sermon, basically calling Moshe to task in Parshat Yitro for coming back from Exodus. And whom does, does Moshe greet first? not Zipporah and not his children, but Yitro. And he spoke about what it means to choose public leadership and the pressure to, to, to hug first, as it were, to embrace first, to focus on first the, the, the people in the system who keep you propped up and who, you know, where the honor comes from and how easy it is. And he understood this even, he wasn't even married yet. Um, and he was comparing it to his own father's life, how easy it is to relegate, even though you don't think you are, the people whom you've chosen to live your life with and given birth to, to second place or third place. It was really uh, beautifully done. Uh, and the reason why I highlight it is because we're also seeing here, you know, I guess my friend Charlie could have written the same sermon on this verse. Whom does Moshe not ask permission, you know, from? Sipora. We're going to see them interact, but the, he, he's asking permission from the father-in-law, not from the family unit that he's actually created. So there's, there's actually several swirling authorities in Moshe's life. There's God who told Moshe to go. There's Yeshua from whom Moshe gets the permission, the Lech Shalom, And then there's the family, the one who, whom he's actually leaving behind. Um, so there's a, there's, a, there's a lot swirling here. And we'll probably come back to that when we get to Parshat Yeshua, but that's a long time in the way at the pace that we're going. Okay, um, that's halfway through the Rashi. So, uh, Leonard, will you please unmute and read the next Rashi? Okay. Zion Shemot Hayudo Reuel Yeter Yitro Keni Chovav Hever Putiel. Okay, translate. He had uh, seven names, the ones I just mentioned. That's two more names than me. (laughs) So what Rashi is doing here is saying, hey, reader, if you're wondering what Yeter is, right, um, it's just one of seven names that that Yitro has. Um, In my trip, I only brought one of my volumes of Rashi with me. I didn't bring the several that are usually around me when I'm teaching. I don't have the Torah Chaim in front of me. I believe in the Torah Chaim, but someone can tell me if I'm wrong, that there's a footnote on this Rashi that tells us of another Rashi who makes the same comment. And in that Rashi, Rashi actually includes all the verses where those names of Yitro um, 
appear. Our, in our Rashi, it's said more, um, uh, it's more tersely. Um, and it's interesting also that Yetter is considered a different name than Yitro as opposed to just a different form of the same name. But Rashi wants us to know if you're confused who this guy was, it's the same as Yitro, same as Chovav, same as Ruel, and um, people we're going to meet later on in the story. It's Good. apparently the Rashi on 18.1. The Rashi on 18.1. That should be in the book of Shemot. You all should have it. Let's take a look at it. I think that's Parsha Yitro, right? Yeah. Is that the first verse of Yitro? No. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, good. So if you want to, at, at your own time, unless you want to wait the 11 years until we hit this Parsha, um, you can look at the second comment of Rashi or the third comment of Rashi in Shemot 18.1, and you'll get all the verses where the different names of Yitro appear. Thank you, Lynn. Okay, good. Uh, any questions on that or comments on the multiple names of Yitro? All right. Let's go to verse uh, 19. Um, Tova, can I, are you okay reading the verse? I don't want to put you on the spot, but I want to include you if you want to be included. <coughs> I can't see you, so I don't know what you're saying. You got to unmute. Sorry. Okay, try that again. Vayomer Adonai Moshe b'Midian, Lake Shuv Mitzrayim, ki metu kol ha'anashim hamvakshim et nafshecha. And God said to Moses in Midian, while he was in Midian, go return to Egypt, because the people, the men who are, the men are dead who sought your soul, your life. Good. Yeah. Uh, we are inclined in a more modern Hebrew to translate nefesh as soul, like as a, um, as a synonym to neshama spirit. In biblical Hebrew, it's almost, um, it's almost, it's almost obvious, not obvious, it's, it's almost certain that nefesh meant actually life and body like your, your personhood as opposed to your um your uh, uh, more more transcendent and spiritual self so nefesh means life good um interestingly um if you look at unculus um unculus makes a choice here which it, it doesn't change anything but it just does make us wonder why he chooses this decision so he says um I'll just do the whole verse. Amar Adonai Moshe. That's easy. He said to Moshe, "Bimidyan and Midyan, Azil Ayin Zali Zayin Lamed." In Aramaic, is the same as Halach in Hebrew. Azal Tuv Tuv Ishuv. You know, in Aramaic, there's certain letters that that switch. So the Shin in um, Hebrew becomes a Taf in Aramaic in some roots. So Tuv Ishuv. Let me try him. Are Ki Mitu. That's Metu. Kol Guvraya. All of the Gevers, like a like a Gever is a man. Debau bet ayin yud in Aramaic is to ask or to request, but instead of saying who requested, who 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 sought your life, he turns it into a verb. Who sought lemik to murder you? Katal kuftet lamed does not mean your life. It means to murder. It means to kill. So uh, I wonder if Uncleus is saying basically to the verse, you verse you've you're missing a, a concept. It's the meaning is clear. You know, we clearly it meant who sought your life, meaning to who sought your end, your life, but I'm going to translate it in such a way that actually produces the verb that 
seems to be missing from the verse, right? Who sought to do what to your life? To take your life, to murder you. So he takes out the noun nefesh and he puts in the verb to murder. Interesting choice. Okay, um, questions on the verse, things that pop out at you just on a, on a first read in language, context, syntax, Diane Larry? It's out of place. Why didn't God tell him this um, back when he was talking with the burning bush? Um, it seems a strange thing, strange thing to tell him now once he's already decided um, uh, to, to go back. And um, why would he even think that uh, having told him to go back, that God having told Moses to go back, that Moses would be worried about, uh, about this? If God's going to protect him and help him to do all these miracles, um, why should he fear these men? And then there's the question, who are these men that he's talking about? Is he Good. talking about the Mitzrayim, Mitzrayim who, who were maybe chasing after him because he killed a taskmaster? Or is he talking about the fellow Hebrews? Very Which good. Is, yeah. Good. That second question, whether you peaked or not, is where Rashi is going to go. The first question is wonderful, and it adds body to the first part of today's conversation, which is the, the, the order of in chronology and in authority as to whom Moshe is getting his direct from whom Moshe is getting his directives as to when to go and why to go right this you can imagine this verse as Larry intimated being the last verse of the fifth Aliyah right um okay we've had that conversation now go already now it's first to first to Yitro and then God says remember I said I was going to tell you to go now I really mean it In, uh there's some weird stuff there Diane so um maybe um God sees God character sees Moses's return to his home <coughs> as a delaying tactic, and that's ah. why he's intervening here. And maybe that's um, uh, emphasized by the Bimidian, right? That yeah. that God said to Moshe, who was still in Midian after that burning bush scene, knew. Great, great. Anyone else? Just stuff on the verse itself. Going once, going twice. Okay. Um, let's get a different reader for the, oh, I wanted to point out one thing. Um, sometimes this, the, the pace at which we go makes stringing together ideas harder. This is another place where we've got the a doubling of the verbs of going and returning, right? So if you go back to verse 18, Vayelech Moshe Vayashov, Moshe went and returned to um, Yitro. And then he says, El Shuva, let me go and return. And now, in our verse, God's saying, go return. So I'm not sure what to do with it, but it's, it's, it's an interesting combination of verb forms when in most of those settings, we, might, we could have done with only one of them. So is this just a, a biblical colloquialism, right? Like, you know, get up and go, right? There are plenty of places in English where we use two verbs when we're really referring to one action. Um, but there are three, of the, three um, examples of that in close succession. Joel, uh, wanted whatever you're going to say, and then you can be the Rashi too. I, I didn't get my my uh, hand up quick enough. Um, I was just wondering if there's a connection between 18 and 19. I mean, Moshe is saying, "I want to go see if my brethren are still alive," and then um, God is saying, "Everyone who sought your life has died." So, is are those just two completely unconnected things, or? Is that the same thing? Is Moshe saying, I want to know whether my brethren, meaning the people I grew up with, uh, i.e. the people who are trying to kill me, are still alive? Or is it really what most people think is the the Hebrews? Are the, the Hebrews? I mean, 
why is he bringing up whether the Hebrews are alive? I mean, there's hundreds of thousands of them. If he, if they'd all died out in the few years that he was at Midian, I think he would have heard about it. Hmm. So your question is really on verse 18. It's going back and lingering on a phrase which we dealt with a bit two weeks ago, but not that much, which is, I will see if they are still alive. You're asking, what's the Habamina? What, what, what might Moshe have thought just that they're not alive? And then you're also wondering if there's a connection between that and the Anashim Hashim Nashecha. What might that connection be? That he, what, the, the Achai is not the is not his his Jewish brethren. It's his Egyptian brethren, the ones he grew up with, who he want him dead. Yeah, exactly. Aha. Uh-huh. I'm going to go and I'm going to turn to my original brothers and see if they're still alive. And if they're not, then it's safer for me to be there, something like that? Correct. Interesting. Um, what do I know? But I don't, I don't, I don't see that as a, as a likely pshat in verse 18. But, you know, the relationship between pshat and drash is, is very, is, uh, is, is not, it's not um, determined, right? It, it doesn't have to be a certain way. So uh, you, you can make that linkage if that's meaningful, because even in verse 19, as we're about to see, and as Larry um, hinted at, it's not clear which anashim, which humans, who were requesting your soul, which either means, as Unculus meant it, who were tried to murder you, or we could say it means something else entirely, right? Um, so those people that Moshe's returning to in these two verses are not 100% clear. Good. Um, anyone, any, oh, anyone else for uh, Joel Reed Zarashi? Okay, read the Rashi on, um, where am I? On Hamabakshim. Anashim Mihem. All the people that wanted you dead, who are they? Datan ve'aviram. Chaim ayu ele... So pause, because there's kind of a, uh, an implied period after Datan ve'aviram, with semicolon. What, what is Rashi saying and what does it bring up for people? What's Rashi's answer to his own question? Right here, here, here uh, you know, Rashi gives the, his question and his answer. What's he saying and what does that um, trigger for people? Any memory? Renee? That it was, ju- that it was just Datan and Abiram that died. That those, they were the ones that were uh, after Moses. Right. So, and does that trigger anyone's memory? Do, have, we, have, we, have we met that story before, Tova? Well, Datan and Abiram will be two of the leaders of the naysayers in the Exodus. Right. So in these two words or three words that Rashi shared, there's some interesting question marks that have emerged. Number one, are da- like, how are Datan and Abiram connected to this story, the ones who need or who might be seeking out Moshe's life? And number two, if they are, and God is saying that they're dead, I've read the Torah, and yes, there's no chronology in the Torah, but not on this level. If people who have been, there's no resurrection of the dead. If they're alive, if they're dead in this scene, right? Then they're alive. Then how could they be alive in the scene in Korah? Good. So um, Stevie is, is helpful here. If, and, and let's remind ourselves of what Rashi said back then. Let me pull it up. So in the scene back in chapter two, where Moshe uh, encounters the, um, well, the, the scene that basically pushes Moshe to flee. 
Look at chapter 2, verse 15. He went out on the second day um, after having smiting, that, ever, having smiting the Egyptian. Two Hebrew men were quarreling. I remember we had lots of conversations about who's the speaker and who's the Rasha here, but the simple shot is that Moshe said to the, the main smiter, the instigator, why are you beating up on your buddy? And there Rashi says, like we look at the original in Hebrew, who are these two Hebrews? Datan These are Datan Anaviram, Haim Shahotiru Minhaman, the same ones who also are going to have um, unnamed people who took extra mana um, on the day of, and they're like little zeligs, they're negative zeligs who will appear in the Midrashic imagination in several places in the story where you have human people doing something, but they're not named. They're Datan Ram. They're only really named uh, in the um, um, in the Korach story. Uh, isn't it Edward G. Robinson who plays Dothan in the uh, Ten Commandments? So if you want to pay, if you want to have a, a face to the um, to the name, uh, where where's your Messiah now? Um, <laughs> you can think of that. Okay, so when Rashi says in our verse. Who are these two people? It's that he's answering the question, are we thinking about the Egyptians who saw him dead? And Rashi's answer is no. It's the, it's the Hebrews whom you intervened with, who then tattled on you. They're the ones who are no longer alive. Okay, so that, that's the first resolution, which makes the second question an even better question. Well, we know they're not dead. Okay, how do we know they're not dead? Because... This one isn't even Midrash. This is Pshat. You look ahead. In the beginning of Parshat Korach. Vaikach Korach ben Yitzhar ben Kahat ben Levi. Korach, the son of Yitzhar, Kahat and Levi. Same tribe, by the way, as Moshe. So like a third cousin of Moshe. Vedatan va'abiram. This is where actually they're introduced as their names. Bnei Eliyav, the sons of Eliyav. Va'on ben Pelop, bnei Ruben. The... the um, rebellion starts with Korach and these two, and they're named there and they're alive. And unless it's the exact same names of, of people who are entirely different people, that's a weird one. Ah, so Rashi has to resolve that. Now, I think that what Rashi really wanted, well, I won't say what I think. Let's read the next Rashi. The, 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 the Rashi is forced by the fact that Rashi is making the decision to say that the two people here are Datam and Abiram. But let's see what he says. This is the Ella like rather. Okay, they were still alive. But Ella Shardu Minichem. So they went down in their possess they went down in their in their station in life. Correct. And the the poor people are considered as if they're dead. So the, Rashi has a, has a way of saying a lot with a little, right? So first he's taking the claim that these two people that God's saying are dead are Datan Abiram. They're no longer a threat to you. He, Rashi knows we're going to ask the question, how can that be? There's no resurrection of the dead before Parshat Korach. And the Rashi uses this as an opportunity to teach a piece of uh, Talmud that comes out, also Masachet Nadarim, but I think it's a, um, a coincidence that the, the, the ones who are impoverished were indigent. And I want to say something before I flesh it out. I don't think the Talmud refer, um, intended this as an insult. 
if it's an insult to anyone, it's an insult to the society that lets it happen. It's not saying that a poor person, we ought to think of them as dead, but that a poor person, we tend to think of them as dead because we don't, as, as if, as if um, they don't exist, right? It's the proverbial or non-proverbial stepping over the indigent person on your way to shul, right? It's, you know, you, sometimes you don't even know, right? You're walking in our city, our fair city, which has so many problems, and you're not even sure if the indigent person who's sleeping on this park bench is alive or dead. And I suppose guilty as charged, if our consciences, consciences were really alert, we wouldn't keep walking. We would stop every single time um, and interact with that person as if they're as much of a living part of our lives as anyone else, but we don't. And the reason why we don't and the time to do it is because there is something that happens. It's not a good thing that when someone leaves a certain station of life, our, our interactions with them no longer are the interactions we have with other living humans. And that's a terrible thing. So what's that doing in this verse is, yes, um, those two guys, Atan Babiram, who were, who were seeking your death by tattling on the Egyptians to you, they, they are mate in the way Masachet Nedarim says they're going to be mate. They're no longer living the lives of authority that they once did. They've dropped their station, which means they're no, they're no threat to you. And this adds somebody to Parshat Korach because now they have a grievance, right? They once were people of renown. And, and yeah, they got out of Egypt, but they got out of Egypt having lost their authority, their honor, their, their wealth, their, their, their nobodies. And nobodies are more likely to wonder why the, the main leader gets all the spotlight rather than someone else. So there's a lot packed in there. Tova and then Diane Larry. Um, part of me really kind of likes this narrative that arguably Rashi has created by first identifying the two combatants as Datana and Abiram and following through. Uh, there is part of me that likes that but it also feels like he's trying too hard, especially explaining a way that they, that these people had died. Uh, and I, I guess I just asked the question, they were slaves. How could they have fallen in status? How could they have lost so much power and authority that they were now dead to the society when presumably, even at the time that they were <clears throat> two Hebrews struggling together, uh, they were slaves. Meaning, what is, the, what is the place from which they could possibly have fallen to this? Right. I mean, the, the thing that came to my mind was, in that kind of situation, the only power they would gain would be if they are informers or collaborators with the Egyptians. And it's hard to see a fall from that position as lowering them in the eyes of Hebrews. Right. And so it's just, like I said, I, on one hand, I like the narrative, but I also feel like he's trying a little bit too hard and it's not entirely convincing. Yeah, def- definitely trying hard <laughs> and, and not necessarily convincing on the, on the logical level. Right. Right? Remember that this is all, this is a waltz between logic and, 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 and meaning making. Yeah. So I think there is a pretty stubborn and relentless part of human culture throughout the annals of anthropology that suggests wherever we are, we create hierarchies, right? You know, even in the upper echelons where everyone has wealth and power and renown, there are micro hierarchies and even way down below, like, you know, there were hierarchies in the ghetto, right? They were amongst the people who had, who had nothing. There were people who found a way to have more than others, right? 
maybe to have a sense of humanity, maybe because, you know, again, way, way back in our, in our DNA, we still want to be the, you know, the, the gorilla who lords over others. Um, and apparently our ancestors were aware of that. So the, the Midrash imagines even amongst the slaves, whether it's direct collaboration with the Egyptians or just, you know, the black market, there were those who found a way to have their enslavement be um, less brutal. And, and by the way, who knows, who knows what Cecil B. DeMille, I mentioned before, was studying, but there are, you, you can see some of that even in the representations of that in the, in the movie, that there are the ones who are slaving underneath the, um, the you know, the pyramids and building, and there are some who are, uh, have found a way to ingratiate themselves into Egyptian society. That's Dothan. Diane Larry, it's probably our last class, last comment and reminder. Um, next week, no class from me. So Le Leonard, if you're available to teach Bavakasha, um, but uh, I'm, I will be on vacation next week. Leanne. Yeah, I'll teach. Great. Diane Larry? So first of all, simply, I take Rashi's, uh, Rashi's comment to be more metaphoric or, or, or symbolic. They, 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 they have no power, they have no wealth, so they have no powers. You don't have to fear, fear them. And that's one way of, I think, a better way of getting out of that. Hmm. But you were talking about that great uh, Mifaresh um, commentator, um, uh, Cecil B. DeMille. It indeed was Edward G. Robinson. But his Midrash or commentary is fascinating because he gives all sorts of roles to Datan. He's, he's the one who, in Bashalach, are telling the people, you know, don't, don't jump in, don't go. Um, even though I don't think of the text, it mentions him by name, but according to the film, it's, it's Edward G. Robinson. And he's also one who informed on the Pharaoh to right. tell Pharaoh that, that uh, Moses was, in, was indeed a, uh, a Hebrew. Uh, yeah. there, there's little doubt, I think, although I, did, I haven't read this anywhere, that he was getting some advice. And who knows, it might have been from some rabbi at Beth Am at the time. It's interesting, right? So that movie is late 50s, right? 56, 57? Something like that, yeah. So it, was, it was in the era of Jacob Pressman. You never know. Um, yeah, I, listen, I'm certain he had some kind of a dramaturg who was exp explaining things. And you're right that, the, that the, the character of Dothan in that movie is connected to this Midrash extreme of being like a gadfly and, and just popping up in all these different scenes going against what God wants. Um, if you want, there is a wonderful from the eighties, um, Billy Crystal routine on the, on the, on the actors chosen to play Pharaoh and Dothan. And he does some great interpretations of both Edward G. Robinson and Yul Brenner in those roles. And it's, it's a great three minutes. It's on his marvelous, ma marvelous album from the 1980s. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.